what does it mean to interact with something and what if that thing was something that you couldn't actually touch but you really wanted to. In the digital age, most of us have become accustomed to talking about the internet as a place. Like the places of the terrestrial world, the internet is composed of designed environments, textures, and social relationships. But of course the internet lacks the physicality we typically associate with the quote-unquote real world. In time this will no doubt change, but for the moment we're at an interesting point when the lines or limits of physicality are less defined than ever before. 3D printing allows unprecedented access to prototyping techniques, expediting the transition from digital model to physical object. Google Glass is coming. Avatar showed us the potential of 3D cinema. Video games will surely soon follow. The distinction between digital and analog space can be uncertain in these times. Alice Channer works within this context. She playfully questions our relationship with objects and creates distorted or stretched worlds that we can clearly see in the elegant curve of mirrored steel but can never physically occupy. I'm Michael James Lewis, and you're listening to Materializing the Immaterial with Alice Channer. We were at this show together, and we were talking about the gallery context. Yep. and the relationship or the expectation in the gallery context that you can't touch things. And, you know, I think your work has this kind of like hypersensuality. You want to touch these things, like, right? As a human being, you see these materials and you want to touch them. Yeah. And you're talking That's about- That's my start point for making everything. So how, I mean, can you just talk to me about that, like that relationship, like working in that context and this kind of denial of sensuality or something? What denial? Mm. I mean, it, like in in the gallery, like we were not allowed. Well, to I think um, it really depends how you define interactivity, and um, I think it's a really important part of my work. That um, and this is, my, I think, this is the conversation we had at that time. It was at the opening of my South London gallery. It must have been. Um, and maybe I imagine what I would have said to you was that I think it's a really important part of the work that you can't touch the object. And part of my experience of making them in in all of my works, there are many different parts that I'm bringing together. So, for example, in some of the multi-part sculptures, there are all sorts of different parts that make up a whole piece. Um, and then those whole pieces are in turn parts that make up installations, and then installations are parts that make up a practice, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but through my experience of making these things, I have become aware of the fact that um, one of the things that I'm making visible is are the gaps between things. So as much as there is this attempt to kind of bring things together, they often remain incredibly separate. Um, So for example, we're looking at documentation at the moment of a show that just finished at Kunstwein Freiburg, but this image here is an image of a printed image on silk on the floor, and then there's a aluminium cast of a rock resting on top of that image but they look like they're in different dimensions Mm -hmm. it looks like this has been the rock has been photoshopped on top of another image Um, but it wasn't it was resting there and it was me thinking about weight and gravity and the way in which this may and also may not be holding this to the ground Mm -hmm. um but something i love the way that documentation documentation is a particular thing Mm -hmm. and i mean it it make some things visible and some things invisible. But what it's doing here is really forcing me to concentrate on the way in which there's a huge distance between this object and this object. So the work kind of, I think it works in different directions at at once. 
So it's important that things are brought together, um, but it's also important that they're held apart. And, so and there is this question about what interactivity is, especially um, this is something that's quite interesting, I think, in, in relation to the world that we live in. What does it mean to interact with something? And what if that thing was something that you can actually touch, but you really wanted to? Mm-hmm. And, um, ah. <laughs> So, yeah, rewind. Um, what is interactivity and um, what does it mean to have a relationship with an object or sort of another entity, another life form? Yeah. I don't know whether it's too much of a stretch to ask you to imagine that um, the things that I'm making can be other life forms or other beings. Um, but I think that this is quite a complex question. Yeah, 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 totally. Do you also, I mean, because what it makes me think of is like our relationship with the internet. Right, which is this like huge world which we're not allowed to kind of participate in. We're not allowed to touch these things, right? Like it's entirely based on immateriality. Yeah. In a certain But at the same time it's very, very it, it has its own materiality. I mean we were talking a moment ago about um Neuromancer, which was really important for me. I was um in my late teens when when that book and then also Sadie Plant Zeros and Ones were, were published. And They've been really, really important for me, I think, because he describes, it sounds a really cheesy term now, cyberspace, before kind of the internet possibly existed, but he describes it in these incredibly sensual and material terms. And I think in my work, one of the characteristics of my relationship to materiality is that I don't think anything is abstract, I don't think anything's empty. I, I kind of refuse those, those terms. And so, yes, that has a particular relationship to this term, virtual which, yeah, I don't think that's abstract. Yeah, yeah. So how then do you, I mean, there's a, would you say that there's a distortion that happens within the work? In what way? In the way that you kind of manipulate these textures or forms, there's like a a play in the materiality of them, which I would call distortion. A lot of the time I'm stretching stuff. So a lot of my work is really to do with trying to stretch objects in in a really, really basic way. So for example, these are aluminium and bronze casts of fingers, uh-huh. and they're stretched. Um, and in order to do that, I made a plaster cast of my own finger. I made a 3D scan of that. I stretched and curved the 3D scan. I made a print from that, and then I pushed it back through um, sand casting. So that's a aluminium cast of that cast, scanned, printed. No, cast, scan, stretched, printed, cast, finger. <laughs> so it, the finger is stretched and that seems to me really, really important. Can you explain like where, you know, kind of how, how that is? What do you mean? I mean that it is, you know, this is like a, I love the process. <laughs> Um, it's nuts. It, it is. It's really and detailed, so, but it's also really basic. It's just to do with me sticking my finger in a finger. Also saying, what's a 3D print? What's a 3D scan? And just putting my finger in it. Like. Okay, so it's this. It is the actual artifact itself becomes about the process of manufacture. It's both because um, this object that is produced must carry all of that within it and more if I've done my job properly. Um, and I think it can warp the work for me to be talking about it because I have a particularly detailed and intense relationship to it and then it becomes something else because this is an object Mm -hmm. so it's separate from me and I'm a subject but a lot of my work is to do also with confusing the barriers between those two things 
But to go back to stretchiness, most of the materials that I work with, once they're exhibited, they're solid. So even fabric, I mean, it moves, but it's, it's solid. But I've often, in order to get it to the point of exhibition, liquefied it or stretched it or contracted it. It's changed state somewhere along the way. Um, and a lot of the materials could potentially change state again. So for example, all the metals, I imagine, as things that are kind of semi their potential li they could become liquids again yeah. if the temperature changed. Yeah, um, yeah. And this is one of the things that fascinates me about metal. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think this fits nicely with the reflective aspects, right? Which are like this, I mean, it feels like there's a movement to the work, it feels, right? Yeah, and they, that also comes back to not being able to touch it, because I know that if I put my finger on the surface of mirror polished stainless steel, it's really cold and hard. But if I look at it as I move around it, it looks soft and it looks like I might be able to put my arm all the way through it and maybe walk through it and kind of step into another reality. Mm -hmm. I also notice this very prosaic industrial material that's used to make the outside of banks and cash points and um, the interiors of kitchens and... Yeah, yeah, these kind of utilitarian things. So then, I mean, the, the relationship between the objects and space... Like, I don't like the term space because it seems okay. too abstract. Okay, so in the room? Or how would you place. define it? Place. I would say place because okay. I think that what, what the work does and what the objects do is to create time and place. Right. It's an effect that they have. They do something that they're kind of activators, I think. They're forces. And they, um, for me, it's really remarkable to install an exhibition because I see all of this happening. Most of my works, probably all of them, I can never actually see in the studio. And that's not just because the studio's six metres by five metres, it's because they're made to become part of exhibitions and the exhibitions are kind of force field. Mm -hmm. As these things are installed, and they always pack up really small, I have to unfold them, unroll them, kind of, I guess the room embodies them in a way. Yeah. The, the process of kind of experiencing them, unfurling and unrolling to become themselves in order to become ex exhibited and to make an exhibition, is a process of, sort of feeling and understanding and experiencing forces start to exert themselves. It's really exciting. So then you, you know, within the studio space, you can experiment to a certain extent with how these things relate to one another. Yeah. But then how do you, how do you make that jump into the big space? I plan it to within an inch of its life. Um, and I think I, as I've worked over the years, I've started to understand what the object wants. So it's sort of to do with working with them a bit. Kind of, do you mean like working to their strengths, sort of? Yeah, knowing what they need. So. Um, what kind of room they might need around them and in between them, the way in which they might need to be sort of approached, the way in which they might need to appear and, and disappear within a certain um, arrangement. But I also try and work with the room. So for, for this exhibition at Kunstverein Freiburg, I imagine that the room becomes a kind of author and there are ways in which I, 
I, I try to let the room influence the works, which is not to say that the work I'm making is site-specific. It very definitely isn't. It, it's responsive, but it's not a response. And this goes back to stretchiness too. So, and this goes back to not being able to touch the works and they're separate things, so. Yeah, it kind of engages the space. Yeah. The, yeah, I mean, I like, I like this, the way that it's, it's like a, this kind of light touch in the way that things hang on the walls, the way that the material, the fabrics kind of touch the floor. Right? Yeah. But then are, are, yeah, as you say, like simultaneously like a part of this place and kind of separate from it. Yeah. So I think that's the world that I live in. I think I live in a world in which many different realities are sort of um, layered on top of each other. And that's what the work uh, kind of makes visible, I think. Is that, it, would you say that then the, like, if, if there were like a grand intention is to try to like ask people, invite people to consider that relationship? Like their relationship within this kind of layered information world that we live in. <laughs> I don't think it's that specific because um, I think so much work at the moment is being written about in terms of its relationship to technology and to the internet. And of course, it, this is a really important moment, and, and there's been a huge change in, in materiality, probably what it means to be a human being. But um, there are also many things that remain the same. So I think both mm -hmm. of its time, but also out of time yeah because it deals with materiality and these like you're talking about i mean like fundamentally it relies on this kind of casting technology which has been yeah, around since the bronze age, the bronze age. <laughs> yeah literally this is one of the earliest technologies when human beings found out okay if i push um, an object into a soft surface leave an imprint fill it up with molten metal i can make an arrowhead yeah so i've done exactly the same thing to make a stretched finger so this the, the idea of stretchiness like how does how do you Maybe how did you arrive at it, or like what is it like? What is it about that kind of like like word? Not just the word though, but like the actual act that that you find so fascinating. Um, well, there's another artist, Joel Tulix, whose work I I really really admire. She's in her sixties, I think. She's a Belgian artist. In many ways, her her practice is quite different from mine, but. Um, really early on, she has a very specific relationship to stretchiness and trying to stretch time and to include, I, I don't understand what size is, but I do understand what scale is. And I think within my works, I try, and within exhibitions, I try to include different kinds of scale. And this is something that also exists in her work. There's not a lot of documentation of her work. But this is something I was thinking about very much when I was at college. So I think stretchiness relates to scale and to do with um, how to expand and contract something. It's also a way of making an object active, I think, because I'm alive and um, part of the condition that makes me alive is that my cells move, um, my lungs move, they expand and contract, my, my pupils move. These are all things that are happening in my, bo in my body, um, in my time and place when I'm moving around an exhibition um, or standing in front of an object um, and so if I can give the objects or the exhibition some of those properties, this kind of stretchiness, then I think there's a kind of equivalence between me and it. Yeah, um, I think this ties really nicely in in like the this whole idea of like dynamicism with how culture moves too, right? I mean for me these things do tap into as you're saying like there's current technologies and there's old technologies, there's like you know material like the silk like you know humans have relied on clothes for a very long time yeah and 
the first walls were fabric. You're an architect, you know that. Yeah, So totally. And then, but then also the printing techniques that you're using are very advanced. And so it's like this hybridization and this kind of like, you know, new and old and like this pull that, that is really nice. So I think you... that's the world that I live in though. I think I live in a world in which different types of time exist alongside each other. And um, that's part of its strangeness. And um, of course then the, the work that I'm making, which comes out of my experience of that wor world, will include those different kinds of types of time as well. Does it, do you feel though, that, I mean, it seems to me like when you, like when you focus on time in that way, it can become very disorienting. <laughs> and so, I mean, do you find, I mean, because it seems to be, to me, like almost like a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it, that's partly because we're talking about it in quite an abstract way. Mm -hmm. And um, I think part of the relief for me and part of maybe um, the relief of making art is that um, just the practicality of it. So this is bronze, it's heavy, this is aluminium, it's very light. That's just quite practical, it's quite a simple thing. Mm -hmm. Just basic properties of these metals. So it's always nice to come back to that, I think. Yeah, to root yourself. Abstract thought might not be that great for humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, because, you know, the consequences, I guess, of abstraction become... I mean, we see them play it's out. It's really violent. For sure. And economically destructive. And it allows people to make excuses for things that yeah. are ultimately damaging. I think it's a fantasy. I think n n nothing can be abstract. And if anything appears to be that, it makes me instantly suspicious. So the architecture of banks, for example, <laughs> that is not a transparent entity in that glass tower. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. And yet there's all this power there. Yeah. It's masking itself in this way. Mm. Absolutely. But I, you know, this is, I think... Money, for example. Right. Especially, yeah, when you get to that scale, I mean, I think there's this assumption that, you know, like bankers actually know what they're talking about, when in reality, it becomes so vastly complex that, like, of course you don't. Of course no one knows actually what's going on, right? We obviously saw yeah. that play out in 2008. I think in sculpture, there's been this idea that uh, sculpture can resist that by making extremely literal and very heavy or very large objects mm -hmm. that are the opposite of these kind of processes of abstraction that we're talking about mm -hmm. and that there's a politics in that but for me I just thought I didn't want to do that I kind of I wanted my work to go further into the belly of the beast maybe and to say okay but there's materiality even here mm -hmm. and this goes back to William Gibson to say what about dematerialization? It's maybe not so dematerialized at all. Mm. So it's almost like bringing back artifacts from this weird zone yeah maybe and maybe that's what these fingers are <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 i mean it's amazing because you know these like these um you know the distortions in right there's that like that, that the escher self-portrait where he's got like the mirrored ball oh yeah, yeah and these like wonderful false worlds that you can be sucked into right we we're looking at these pictures earlier of some of this mirrored stainless steel sculptures and these distortions become a world under themselves. They're not real, but yet they are. They're right there. Yeah, and we made them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, okay, so I want to talk then, just kind of going back a little bit and staying here, about that relationship between, like, there's, there's this thing and there's this thing, and they communicate with each other in place. And so how that unfolds for you, like, within your practice, like, how do you... Like if this, if the, how do these two things communicate? I guess is what I'm asking. What do you mean? What do you I mean, mean like if you, you say you have uh, this kind of curved stainless steel polished object, and you mm -hmm. have this like snake like steel tube object. Yeah. How they how their relationship evolves. 
within an exhibition or within within your within the, like your development like within your process I guess I think I um, try and work on lots of different things at once and the works are successful when there's a sort of um, hybridization or cross fertilization when things that I'm working on separately start to um, cross with each other. Do you force that's that? that? No, okay, I think that's okay. something that happens in the studio, mm-hmm. just through bringing stuff back here and, and just letting it kind of uh, get on in a, in a corner of my, in my kind of peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. So for example, all of these aluminium cast of rocks, it was two years ago that the pavement outside the studio was being dug up and you were still here. <laughs> And I started um, taking the lumps of concrete out of the hole and bringing them into the studio. So it took me a good year before that kind of entered the work in any way. Mm-hmm. It, um, yeah. So yeah, so like you you allow them to mature or something, or, or like, mutate. Yeah, maybe. Right, right. So do, I mean, is that because it sounds to me that sounds like a very playful thing? I mean, is that? play to you I mean does, does the like does play, the word play fit at all it feels a bit more basic than that it's more just like um, maybe it's playful in that um, there's not always an intentionality there often when I try to bring things together too forcefully I'm using my ego it just doesn't work and I've been going through this process now of having a big sort of studio chuck out because over the last 18 months I've made three solo institutional exhibitions, my first solo show in New York, and a Venice Biennale presentation, and lots of other work. So there's, there's just been a lot of kind of stuff in the studio, and I've been going back through it, and I've realised how many full starts I made. <laughs> and yeah, fine, I kind of forget about them and go along, but it was interesting to go back through everything and think, okay, <laughs> so much that didn't work. Yeah. And um, it's fine, I, you know, it's good to have some red herrings. I have to just keep myself busy while time passes. Yeah. So how do you move then from sketch to sketch, as it were? I mean, the... It to have deadlines, I think. Right. <laughs> yeah. I keep things moving. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of emphasis on movement and um, just trying to keep kind of kicking up dust and keep trying new things and keep bringing new things into the studio. So for example, at the moment, I've got these... Um, no idea how this is going to become useful. <laughs> Can you hear that? Oh, wow. This is, this, is, this is interesting in relation to materiality. It's, um, the guy that sold me this described it as prime virgin material. And what it is is plastic in its raw state. So this is pelletized HDPE. So if you're making food packaging, um, cling film, any kind of plastic film, shampoo bottles pretty much anything, any disposable plastic that you can think of, water bottles, this is what it will be made of. And it looks, to me, extremely beautiful. They look like little, they're they're sort of white, slightly pearlescent, shiny. They could be fish eggs, um, maybe tiny sort of rough pearls. Um, But (laughs) this extremely seductive stuff is... um, this is, I think, one of the main pollutants in the ocean. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch, this huge area of plastic in the ocean, is mainly made up of this underneath the water. It's as big as Africa, I think they think. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And it's mainly made up of these. They're otherwise known as nerdles. The, the, the plastic beads are known as nerdles? This, yeah, this is known That's as nerdles. That's a great term. So it looks like, and apparently there are beaches that where, and I mean, plastic is wound up even smaller like this than mm. this into the sand, mm-hmm. and it's indistingu- indistinguishable. 
So this fascinates me because also to go back to our, di- our discussion about abstraction and mm-hmm. emptiness and those things not existing, this was described to me as prime virgin material. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, it looks so um, sort of pure in a way. I mean, this, th- these could be seeds. Yeah, or, it's beautiful. Um, but, so, but I have yeah, it's, no it's, idea it's what this is going to be for. And this is 25 kilograms of it. And... Um, it's just here. So you came. So how did this? How did you find this? Or like, how did this happen? I think I was working with resin in the work for a couple of years now, and that's the first sort of plastic that's really come into the work. I was thinking about that. I was reading a really great book um, called The World Without Us. Okay. Which I... is um, it's sort of like science fiction, and it's written from the point of view. It's ecology as well, and it's a little bit religious and places for me but when it's really good it has the same characteristics of um, neuromancer in that um, we're in this supposedly sort of apocalyptic situation imagining the world the premise of the book is if human beings disappeared tomorrow how long would it take for everything that we've made to break down wow right so um, it's a book about nature whatever we imagine that might be Mm -hmm. but there's a whole chapter about plastics and he was talking about these these nurgles, and I thought, I'm going to get some of those. Amazing. So it's, it's, it's a really, really simple thing. It's like with a lot of the materials I make, I just want to get some of it and touch it. And yeah, plant the seeds or something exactly. and let the idea grow. This is what the studio is as well. It's a place to kind of bring stuff and let's see what happens to it. That will probably start working when there's another thing and another thing, and it's they'll kind of unlock each other. So mm. don't know how. That's a really nice way of viewing it, I think, and, and having that space. I mean... You know, it's something that is, like, fundamental to the practice, right? Like, you need a space, right? You need a space in which you can almost, like, exert yourself. Or, or like, I don't know if exert yourself is the right word, but, like, allow your personality to unfold or something? Yeah, or to kind of... um, There's a bit of that, but then I think um, my kind of authorship is to do with working alongside the materials and the processes that I'm working with and letting them sort of become visible with me. Hmm. So if, if it works, um, there's as much of it in the work as there is of me in the work. It's a kind of parallel situation, I think. So, and if it doesn't work, it's because I've forced things too much. So, so when you do, when you feel like something's forced, it's like it's clearly not working. You're not feeling it. You you kind of set it aside and you like just give it time, or yeah, just, just carry on with something else. Yeah, because I don't usually know either. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's a really nice, like, there's a nice looseness in that, right? Of, like, viewing these things as, like, a kit of parts in a way. Yeah. And... There's a looseness, but it's also really highly strong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do you mean in in terms of your specificity? Yeah, I think so. And my kind of um, uh, sort of urgency and, um, yeah, I feel a a kind of sense of urgency in my work and um, I just want to get on with doing stuff too but that do you think the urgency more is just like a a desire to to produce and be be in this world and yeah I think it is that it goes back to so I remember at college one of my tutors actually accused me of wanting to make work therapeutically and I thought that's a funny thing to accuse me of because surely you know this is an important human activity you know there's a reason why we need to do this and um, it's because it it kind of makes us part of the world that we live in is is that it's kind of a form of communication and um being i think yeah and therapy to me is like a it's a a process of reflection which i mean you could criticize all practice of being that 
right? It's it's people trying to contextualize the world however they yeah. feel they need to. Yeah, maybe for him, I can see the negative in it, and that it becomes like a hobby. Or I don't think I don't think that's what he meant. He can maybe sense a little bit of anxiety in it, but I like work that's got a bit of a, little, a bit of angst in it. I think that's good. It's the edge. Oh my gosh! If you go if you go <laughs> into the center of London, like you know, that is a reality, right? Like we are an anxious culture, you know, at least in the Western developed world. And that's something that, I mean, Christ, like, you know, pharmaceuticals and things like that, like we are so prescribed because of anxiety, things, <laughs> right? Like we are steeped in it. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's so interesting though. So then I, I want to talk as well about like the, um, your process of like image selection or, you know, on the printed fabrics, yeah. the textures that you are drawn to like is there what guides that um well in the case of this work which is um this piece is called tsunami it began with an image taken from an object and the object was a pair of wet look snake print leggings and i'd had them in the studio for about three years so yeah in a really really simple way the images come from objects and i would count these two as objects these are images that i bought from getty Alice points to two A4 printouts taped to the wall behind us. The photographs are the hue of the bottom of a swimming pool and appear to be close-ups of bubbles. But for me, they're, they're like any other object. They're like a snake print legging or a shampoo bottle. There's a similar work to this that involves photographing Pantene shampoo bottles and then massively stretching them so that they become columns holding up the ceiling. Mm. So it's to do with relationships to objects and wanting to flatten them, stretch them, to, to, they're quite violent, these processes, I think, they're quite extreme, mm. but by, um, it's, it's, it's very, very weird to me that by extremely flattening something, extremely stretching it, I can make it seem very three-dimensional. For it sure. It has the extreme opposite effect. I think the, yeah, I mean, the snakeskin stuff, especially, you know, like the, the prints and the, um, you know, they become like these abstracted city plans to me. There's something so urban about, about their kind of, you know, they're these like classic, you know, something you learn like first year of architectural history. There are these like plans of Rome that were drawn, which are like these black, white, negative space, positive space drawings, which were about the public and private realms of Rome. And you know, these are these were like incredibly influential drawings, and they are. And know, they look like snake print. They they look like your snake print kind of prints. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're they're amazing because it is it's all about this, you know, this very simply like definition of space. And I think when you talk about the, the idea of place, to me that's what it is. It's this separation, this defining. Right? These are these objects come into this space and begin to define the space. Is is that does that does that sound like fair to you? Yeah, I mean, this, this work was called Tsunami and it was because I was thinking of it as an event, as a, as a force field that would exert a force on an environment. But that environment was a building that was a Nazi-era swimming pool that still has this weird sort of clinical swimming pool of that era, I suppose, feeling about it. And so I thought, what about if I... Can I make this room like a terrarium or a vivarium or a swimming pool? You know, an artificial, completely artificial environment built by humans. Um, and can I make this event in it? And um, in my ambition for any exhibition is to change my experience of the time and the place that it's in. Mm. The, the room, I suppose. And But to do that using... I haven't found the word for this yet because I... I I feel very uncomfortable with my work being described as slight 
um, or minimal, but to do that using means that might seem unlikely. So, for example, I'm, I'm doing that, but I'm not making massive architectural interventions. I'm not building walls. Um, I'm not making very huge and very obvious changes to the space, to the place. <laughs> and this, this work, which I wanted to be this, this kind of um, large-scale event, like a tsunami, is just made using 20 metres of printed silk, not even one and a half metres wide. So it's trying, I'm after drama and effect, but through what might seem like unlikely means. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, there's, I think there's an elegance to the... The elegance is really important. Yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, it's because it's, it's almost diagrammatic to a certain extent, but then it, it still has this very real materiality, right? I mean, it, it, yeah. But I think the elegance is, and the glamour of the work is quite, is quite an odd one as well. It can be a strange one for people to take. And I'm always really unsuccessful at applying for funding. And I always wonder whether that's because the work looks too glamorous, like it doesn't need it. Interesting, <laughs> ah, interesting. There's not a lot of funding around these days. So <laughs> give yourself reasons for not getting it. But, but that's, I mean, so do, do you conceive of it in any way? Because to me there is like this, there, there, it feels like there's strong associations to fashion in the sense that, you know, you're taking garments and abstracting them, distorting them. And, like, how do you, do you view it in relationship to fashion? Well, for me, fashion is, a really basic way of thinking about what fashion is, it's to do with how objects change their meaning. I'm really interested in How, can you, like, explore that a little bit more? Because I'm not sure I completely understand what you mean. Well, it's how capitalism changes the meaning of, of objects through... Well, there's a bit of voodoo in it, isn't there? <laughs> so I don't know how I can explain it. It's really hard to talk about fashion. Do you mean I'm like also a... talking about, I'm making work as someone who's seduced, so I'm making it using things that are um, kind of part of fashion. And mm-hmm. I'm, They're like you know, charged, I have some right? snake print accessories at the moment, and I might not be so into them in a year, but um, there, there's that kind of level of myself that I'm using here as well. Did I not explain that one? Yeah, no, 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 totally. I get it now. I just, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think what you're talking about is like the... Just to do with trends. Yeah, right. And how there becomes this, like, superficial... Yeah, but, yes, but no. Exa- right, exactly. exactly. Just, I don't mean that yeah. in, like, a dismissive way, yes. But it's, it's, there's so much fluidity to fashion. And it is such, I mean, it's, like, quite immaterial in that sense, right? It's this constantly evolving thing and it has been, you know, for as long as humans have been around. But yeah, so okay, so for for you, it's about like incorporating and using this language because it is a part of society. Yeah, and but it's also about I can't really distance myself from that so much, so that might be why it's quite difficult for me to talk about it. Any fashion theorist, and I've read a little bit, will usually begin by writing about what a slippery subject it is. Hmm. Hard to talk about. Yeah, shooting at a moving target or something. But this was, I mean, a lot of the work also begins with items of clothing, so things that are worn. And they also, clothes for me are particularly fascinating objects because of how ambiguous they are. That um, Most objects I can hold at arm's length and kind of say what they are. Like, this is, this is a mug and I'm holding it and I'm looking at it. I know exactly what it is and, okay, it has a different design from your mug, but um, it's got a handle, it's got a T in it. Clothes are completely different because I can't ever hold them at arm's length and wearing them. So they need to be embodied. They're kind of in between the subject and the object somehow. They have a contingency built into them in that um, I could lend my jumper to you. You could wear it. It would still be recognisable as my jumper, but it would have changed completely because you're a different person. So Mm -hmm. they have this. um, And I want the same kind of status for the objects that I make. That's an interesting way, I think, of describing their stretchiness or their 
responsiveness of the relationship to time and place. These objects will all be shown in this exhibition that we're looking at the images of now at Kunstwein Freiburg. They'll be shown in other places. They'll be recognisable as themselves, but they'll look different. So is that kind of stretchiness that one in them? <laughs> Fabrics also flat, um, and a lot of the fabrics that I'm using are stretchy. So the the wet look snake print legging that I took this photograph from was stretchy. The jersey fabrics that I take casts from to make these works, they're stretchy fabrics. And I think the 21st century is all about stretchiness and the knit, not the weave. Mm. So woven fabrics are all about right angles and they're, they're orthogonal and they're not so stretchy. Knitted fabrics, so jersey for example are all about stretchiness and the knit is structured completely differently from the weave because it's all about loops, it's multi-spatial and I think that's the world that we live in. I grew up um, in a house where anything could be made. Um, my mum was a seamstress, and my mum still is a seamstress, but she, one Christmas, for example, she made me a care bear, and um, I was really cross with her because um, how could she have thought that I would have wanted a homemade care bear instead of a mass-produced care bear? And um, that, I grew up in a house where anything could be made and anything could be made of fabric. And I, would, I was making stuff all the time as well. That was really important for me. But this tension between things that are homemade or made by hand, whatever that means, because I don't think it's very clear, and then things that are industrially produced, which I don't think is clear either, because I think, I don't even know if those two categories exist. That's a really important part of kind of who I am and therefore what the work that I'm making. I completely agree with Alice. The knitted, looped, multi-spatial world that so fascinates her is, I think, the way that our experience operates. Our understanding of place is dependent on so many factors and changes with time, beyond the physical changes of weather and light, memory and subjective experiential qualities also inform our understanding of place. These understandings are fluid and dynamic, and they loop, and they become distorted, and they stretch. The work itself behaves in the same way, animating its context, a curved mirror that accentuates the realities of this world and opens up the possible discovery of others. In this way, the work is an invitation, a prompt that allows us to reflect on the remarkable complexities of what it means to experience the world. I want to thank Alice so much for talking with me. It was such a pleasure. I'm Michael James Lewis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>